minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. Before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and monthly co-host, Cap Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is John Michael Greer, and he has a new book coming out called The Twilight of Pluto. Thanks for coming on, John. Oh, thank you for having me on again. Ah, it's my pleasure. How have you been? I'm doing pretty well, actually. Um, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful spring day here in in Rhode Island. So, wait, it's not like 27 degrees there. No, it was it it mind you, it bounced off. I think it bounced down to about 19 overnight. But at the moment, it's bright, clear, and sunny. Uh, you're not that far from me now. I moved. I'm in Jersey. That's right. You're in Jersey now. Yeah. Hmm. So, to your book, the Twilight mm-hmm. of Pluto. Pluto, Pluto being Pluto. the god of the underworld. Mm-hmm. What um, influence does this sphere have on us, and what is it doing? Well, that's that's the complicated. You you're heading right into the complicated part right now, <laughs> because um, Pl- when Pluto was discovered, of course, I mean astrologers don't just um, pull pull things out of you know various orifices. Or other, um, when astrologer, when a new planet is discovered, or something else like that happens, astrologers have to find out what it means. And so, when Pluto was discovered in 1930, the astrologers went to work um, casting charts. Once they had its position, they could track it back through time. Okay, it's here, it's here. Where is it in your birth chart? And all the usual stuff that you know it's part of the normal working working day of a practicing astrologer. Um, and they quickly discovered they were dealing with a very, very strange, very challenging phenomenon. Um, Pluto is a bear. Pluto is a, is a very, very difficult planet to work with in many cases. Um, Pluto is the planet of, of the underworld, of the things we don't notice, the things we don't want to talk about. It has connections with the underworld in a criminal sense. Um, in mundane charts, charts dealing uh, astrological charts dealing with politics and things like that, um, positions of Pluto will tell you um, things like organized crime and corruption. It will point to those as factors in the in the political or economic life of a society. Mm-hmm. Um, in a personal uh, in, in a personal chart, in somebody's birth chart or transits or uh, progressions, you look to Pluto to tell you how do you defeat yourself. How do you mess yourself over? What are the things you don't want to talk about and don't want to think about? What is going on in your unconscious mind? Um, how, what, what are your addictions? What are, your, what are the fantasies that nobody knows about? Hmm. And when it starts showing up in transits, when it, um, when it gets activated by something else going on in the sky, um, it's usually, a, you know, what they found was it's a mess. 
you have people having nervous breakdowns, you have people you know, plunging into alcoholism or drug abuse, you have um, people doing things that they would not normally do and getting in deep trouble as a result. So that was that. That was the the world that came into being. That was the 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 um, phase of human existence that Pluto seemed to connect with, seemed to correlate with very closely. Once the astrologers got to work on it, and of course, it was not accidental. Perhaps, and we'll get into that more. That Pluto came into public awareness. Pluto was discovered by astrolo- by astronomers and then um, you know identified by astrologers at a time when the psychology of the unconscious was was new and hot. At a time when the criminal underworld was all over the newspapers. At a time when um, various other things that that were Plutonian um, were at the front of people's minds. Interesting. So. How long does it take for Pluto to circle the sun? Like, what are his phases? I, 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 I don't happen to remember the length of the or, the orbit, but it's, I believe it's getting on for 200 years. Wow. It's, it's way out there. Um, let's see, Uranus, Uranus is 84, and Neptune is a chunk larger than that. Um, yeah. As it happens, I don't track Pluto these days, and we'll get to the reason why. Um, there are there are situations where Pluto is still potentially useful, but the whole point of the book is that the what we can call the Plutonian era, the period in which Pluto acted as a planet, is something that we can define both a beginning and an end for, and that's where life gets interesting. Hmm. So so our us simply changing the status of the planet changes how it affects us? No, 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 no. No, it's the other way around. Um, the, the basic theory of astrology is that events on Earth are predicted and shaped by events in the heavens. It's not the other way around. It's not that, you know, you're born on such and such a day and therefore the planets do something. The planets do something and they affect the energies that shape your birth in the same way. Pluto was discovered when it was the right time for Pluto to be discovered. And in fact, if you go back through the discovery of each planet, you'll find that there's this sort of build-up, and then a new influence is born in human society. And so you can see the planetary energy constellating, taking shape in the heavens and then on Earth. In the same way, as I said, Pluto was discovered when it was the right time for Pluto to be discovered. Pluto was downgraded when it was the right time for Pluto to be downgraded. And there were very good reasons for that, which we can get into, um, for why people realized, why astronomers realized it was not, it, it wasn't a planet. But the fact that they thought it was a planet from 1930 on, um, marks, I mean, that didn't have an effect on the world or on the heavens. The planetary energies, the energies of the cosmos, had an effect on that decision, on the various things that happened thereafter, and the, the rise and fall of Pluto. It was literally written in the stars. Wow. So, so what happened with the discovery of I mean, if it was discovered, what, like in 1930, you're saying? 1930. So, so that's yeah, what like happened? right before World War II. Well, it was, it was right after the beginning of the Great, Great Depression, nine years mm-hmm. before the Second World War broke out. Yeah. Rough times. Okay, so so the way it happened, um, they they discovered um, back in the late 18th century they discovered Uranus in the middle of the 19th century Neptune, and of course by then they had a lot of the math of planetary orbits down cold. Um, Isaac Newton got all the basics down um, back in the back in the late 1600s. 
And so they calculated the, the orbit of, of Uranus and the orbit of Neptune as they were discovered. They paid attention to all the various gravitational forces on them. Here's the pole, the way Saturn yanks on it. Here's the way Jupiter yanks on it. Here's the, or the sun and so on. And it didn't quite work. And nobody could quite make it work. And so the idea came about by 1900. They were pretty sure there has to be another planet out there. And so in 1900, astronomers started looking for this other planet, what they called Planet X. I mean, it sounds like something out of a out of a tacky science mm-hmm. fiction flick. And I suppose it was, in a way. Certainly there were a lot of Planet X um, stories in those days. But Planet X, we've got to find Planet X. It, it, it really does sound great. It makes for great newspaper copy, too. <laughs> but so so you have, the, you have astronomers all over the place searching for Planet X. And... There were a lot of, I mean, there, there were a lot of people doing it, but this, this is, we're talking so far out in the solar system that it's not just a matter of looking up in the sky. Um, we're looking for a tiny little dot making very slight movements against the background of the stars. It's not much to go on. Right. And you have to do it typically by, t- the, you know, because you can't do it with just by looking. They do it with, they did it in those days with a thing called a blink comparator, where you took two photographs of the same chunk of the sky taken uh, like a couple of weeks apart. Mm-hmm. And you flip from one to the other really fast using this blink comparator. And if one of the little dots shifts, oh, there we go. So um, this young man named Clyde Tombaugh. Um, was hired by one of the this observatory in Arizona, and his job, um, eight hours a day, five days a week, was to flip from one of these pictures to another using a blink comparator to try to find a planet. <laughs> and that was what he did for years. But he found it. He found it in, in 1930. He, he went up to the head of the observatory saying, well, I may have just found your planet. <laughs> and, and he had. And they, everyone went back through old star fields once they had an idea of where it was and how fast it was moving, and they were able to trace the thing and set out the orbit. And there was actually a competition to name it. But that had not happened before. And in the past, what happened was the astronomers came up with came up with their own ideas, mm-hmm. and that's how that, that's how Uranus nearly got named Herschel. But that's another story. Um, but no, they actually had a competition, uh, and a. A girl in England, I think she was like nine years old, said, oh, it's out there in the, in the, in the black darkness of the uttermost end of the solar system. It should be named after Pluto, Lord of the Underworld. And since the guy who was funding the observatory was named Percival Lowell, P.L., Pluto was great because it has his initials in it, okay? Mm-hmm. So they named it Pluto. But they, but they did this sort of public, oh, and, and there was a lot of hoopla. It was a big deal. I mean, this is in the early stages of the Great Depression. People wanted a distraction. So Pluto was the distraction, and that was why, for example, Walt Disney, who was a rising young animator in those days, decided that his his Mickey Mouse, he was Mickey Mouse by then, he'd been Mortimer Mouse originally, but he was Mickey Mouse by Mm -hmm. then, and he needed a dog, and the dog was named Pluto the Pup. And that's where we got Pluto the Dog uh, in in the Walt Disney franchise. but yeah, so Pluto was Pluto was a was a big deal. Now, the ter- the word Pluto had been used for a lot of things beforehand, which is one of those interesting things. One of the major ones was one of the leading American brands of laxative in those days was called Pluto Water. When nature won't, Pluto will. <laughs> oh, that was <laughs> seriously. <laughs> that's awful. 
<laughs> yeah, but the funny thing is that really ended up predicting a lot of what was going on with the, the energies of this planet. It was in the wake of Pluto's discovery that um, scientists working in high-energy physics, they were working with uranium, which had been named after Uranus, of course, um, and they they ended up going, okay, we've, we've been able to make a new element out of this. They called it Neptunium. It was really unstable. So we're going to try this other one. Ooh, we'll name this one Plutonium. Well, guess which one turned out to be the most useful um, me, you know, metal for building nuclear weapons? Plutonium. Mm-hmm. That's Pluto. That's, you know, and, and the whole destructive, toxic... Yeah. Um, radioactive mess of that planet is very well symbolized by plutonium. When nature won't, <laughs> Pluto will. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So that was how it, that was how Pluto was discovered, um, and that's when the problems really began. Because when Pluto was, the, remember they had that they had all these calculations assuming that Uranus and Neptune were being yanked out of orbit by this other planet further out, and it, they calculated it had to be about the size of Neptune. Well, the dot that they could see from the um, to, from the best telescopes on Earth was not big enough. Mm-hmm. So they said, okay, well maybe it's the size of the Earth. It's about that. We'll say it's, uh, the math doesn't work, but we've got a planet, so we'll try to make it functional. Yeah. And the, the, you know, figuring out the the size of a planet, millions upon millions upon millions of miles away, in the out in the in the dark suburbs of the solar system, um, is a difficult proposition. It was even more difficult in 1930. But here's the thing that happened: the more they the the more people improved the the telescopes that were available, the means for calculating the size of a of an object at a distance like that, the smaller Pluto got. And this went on year after year. Every measurement shrank it further. In fact, in, I think it was in 1980, there was this scientific article published, uh, tongue-in-cheek. I mean, scientists still had a sense of humor in those days. Mm-hmm. And they were predicting that if the if this, this process of dwindling continued, they had a graph with the various things and a line drawn through it, that Pluto would vanish completely by 1984. Uh-huh. Well, it didn't quite. But what happened, there, there are two things that happened. First of all, they found out that Pluto was not the only little lump of ice out there on the outer edge of the solar system. They started discovering more of them, not with blink comparators, but with computer technology. Right. Once we got good graphics programs that could analyze something like um, photographs, and once enough of the photographs from, um, from observatories ended up getting uploaded and processed and made available to these things, you could just run through, oh, let's let's check a couple of billion photographs this week. <laughs> and so it, was, so, so it was much easier. And so they suddenly started finding, they found Eris, and they found Sedna, and they found Quaoar, and they found all these other little, and they all looked very much like Pluto. And they were all little. And meanwhile, they figured out that um, the reason that Uranus and Neptune, the reason the numbers didn't work, well, we sent satellites past those. And that's when we found out that they'd misestimated the weight of Uranus and the weight of Neptune. And actually, when you put in the right weights, it works just fine. There's no need for another planet out there. Mm -hmm. And then we, of course, sent an orbiter around Pluto and found out that Pluto is tiny. It's one four hundredth the size of the Earth. It's one seventh the size of our moon. Really? It's this tiny little lump of ice and 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 methane tar. 
sitting out there, and there are many, I mean, the, the, the Eris, another of these little distant objects, is larger than Pluto is. Um, what is it, something like a dozen moons in the solar system are bigger than, than Pluto is. It's tiny. And so that was why the astronomers in, in, in 2006 got together at the convention in Vienna, you know, the, uh, and one of the items of business was, okay, is Pluto a planet? No, obviously Pluto is not a planet. They created a new category of dwarf planet. For Pluto and for Ceres, which was previously considered the largest of the asteroids. But most of the asteroids are these jagged little chunks, chunks of rock. And Ceres is a sphere. Ceres is large enough that gravity contracted her into a, into a proper you know, ball like Pluto, like Eris, and so on. And so, so we have, so that was why Pluto was downgraded. It wasn't, it wasn't the scientists that just got, you know, got a wild hair up. They were looking at this umpty year history of Pluto being redefined and, and analyzed and more thoroughly discovered and more thoroughly worked out, having its orbit calculated and so on. And they said, this, this isn't a planet. This is a little snowball. Hmm. And so we need to start treating it as one. So. Interesting. So if it was just a little snowball, then how did it influence us? Okay, that one of the great challenges in astrology, we don't know how the planets influence things on Earth. We don't. We just plain don't. There are theories. There are lots of theories. Theories are easy. <laughs> but try finding a way to test them. And by the way, try getting a grant. You know, here you are applying to the National Academy of the Sciences. You want, you know, six, a six million dollar grant to figure out how astrology works. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> exactly. There's there's no way to get adequate financing for the necessary work that, that would have to be done to figure out what's going on. All we know is that the correlation between planetary movements and events on Earth is sufficiently strong that you know the the people who created astrology five thousand years ago or more um they obviously caught on to something, and all the work that has been done since then tabulating what the planets are doing in the heavens, noticing what's happening on earth, saying, "Oh, that's what Sun and Leo means um he's going to grow up to be a jerk <laughs> a badly aspected Sun and Leo can be oh can, yeah, well, never mind um <laughs> I have Leo Moon and Leo Rising. I can I can get away with saying that. <laughs> but so, yeah, so, so we don't know. And that's one of the things that makes all of this so strange is that we have this, in effect, a planetary force coming into being. And, and the thing is, the astrologers were, again, the astrologers in 1930 were, were not just making this stuff up. They were looking at these charts and going, look, at, will you look at that? Okay. That explains this weird thing in this chart that I didn't understand before. In fact, um, there were people up until um, before before uh, 1930 who had been saying, "Hold it! There is something going on in this particular part of the sky, because whenever any planet goes goes by there." You get these this this weird reaction and that weird reaction. I wonder what it is. And it turned out Pluto was there. And so, so it was obvious that this force was coming into prominence. And now, one of the things that I figured out doing my research is that there's about a 30-year lead time, about a 30-year process, whereby a planet that's going to be discovered comes online. You can see that with the discovery of Uranus. You can mm -hmm. see it with the discovery of Neptune. 
You can also see it with the discovery of Ceres. Well, I mentioned the dwarf, now, now Caucasus is a dwarf planet. When Ceres was first discovered, she was thought to be a planet, just the way Pluto was. And everyone said, well, we have a new planet in the solar system. It's between Mars and Jupiter. It makes all this additional sense. Hold it. There are other little bodies darting through the same area. That's how they discovered the asteroid belt. Mm-hmm. But at first, everyone thought Ceres was a planet. And when Ceres, during that 30-year run-up for the discovery of Ceres, you had the emergence of this whole series of cultural themes, of historical and political patterns, of economic patterns, things that are usually lumped together under the term romanticism. Um, there was, there was you know, romantic art, there was romantic music, there was romantic literature. Most of it's unreadable nowadays. It makes no <laughs> sense to any. No, seriously. If you ever have a chance to find... Uh, the Sorrows of Young Werther by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, um, German author, one of the major figures of the Romantic movement in his youth. He grew out of it, like most people do. But here is this book. It was a Europe-wide bestseller. Everyone read it. Everyone emoted over it. It's this love triangle between Werther and this couple who's his best friend. She's in love with, or he's in love with, with the wife. Uh, but of course, he's not going to do anything because he's, you know, the, the husband is his best friend. And they all emote for a while, and then he goes and blows his brains out. Not much of a plot. No. But this was an incredible bestseller in its time. Nowadays, I, I have yet to meet anyone who has read it, and of course not many people have read it, who was able to read it without either throwing it across, across the room at the nearest wall <laughs> or collapsing in laughter because it's so silly. And yet while Ceres was a planet, it didn't have that effect at all. It's there so were people weird. literally who went out and blew their brains out in imitation of Werther's suicide because they were so moved by the by, by this... Uh, you know, by, by, by this this story. Thank heavens there weren't movies in those days. Yeah, I could see the you know the sorrows of young Werther and people running out and killing themselves. <laughs> it would have been oh, it would have been a runaway hit though. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the thing, but the reason that I that I bring this in is this series again. Series was discovered in a, in a, what was it eighteen hundred? I think it was. And so there's that thirty year lead time coming in. And then around 1850, everyone got around in the astro- in the astronomy scene got around to admitting, well, you know, Ceres isn't a planet after all. And so um, she got popped down to asteroid status, and there was a 30-year tapering where you have from about 1850 to about 1880, where romanticism just kind of dried up, and people took their copies of the Sorrows of Young Werther off the bookshelves and you know donated them to the equivalent to, to whatever they had in place of thrift stores in those days. <laughs> and, well, and so you, yeah, no, this guy was dead by then. He didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> um, besides, he'd written he'd written a lot of other things that were frankly much better. If if oh, what's her name, the author of the the Twilight books, if she goes uh-huh. on to become like a serious literary author and produces these major works of literature that people that are being read for three hundred, you know, three hundred, five hundred years from now, that'll be the same kind of thing. <laughs> but Goethe's, Goethe's early stuff was dreadful. Very, very popular, very emotional. But but again, he grew out of it. <laughs> but so we have this process, the 30-year lead time coming in, the 30-year lag time going out. And that's the thing that I was looking at with Pluto in this book. We have the 30-year lead time coming in. So Pluto's discovered in 1930. Right around 1900, you start seeing these Plutonian factors surfacing in culture. 
you start seeing um well for example you have um not long after that that process begins you have albert einstein saying hold it these things we call atoms the word atom literally means indivisible it can't be divided they can be split and if anyone does split, let me do some math here. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Um, you know, E equals MC squared. The amount of energy you can get out of this matter is incredibly vast. The mass times the speed of light squared. Okay. And everyone went, oh, crap. <laughs> of course, you know, because on the one hand, you had military planners going, ooh, that would blow up nicely. And everyone else going, I'm crawling under the bed now. <laughs> um, at the same time, this guy um, named Sigmund Freud down in Vienna was going, the mind is not a unity any more than the atom is. The, the, we have this word individual. It also means can't be divided, just like atom. Okay? So he split the individual. He said, no, there's a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. There are all these things going on in your head that you don't know about very Plutonian. And so we had the, the, psycho, the psychotherapeutic revolution. We have, you know, Freud pointing out that um, all of these, you know, Victorians who were, uh, of course, we don't ever think about sex. They were thinking about sex all the time, one inch below the surface of their minds. And he, you know, so you had this whole, again, this sort of Plutonian fixation on sex and death in the underworld and what crawls through the crawl spaces. Um, you had um, various political movements uh, until the until the Plutonian period started coming in. Communism was a utopian pie in the sky. Wow, wouldn't it be wonderful? And then you had people like Lenin who said, "No, we're not going to sit around and daydream anymore. We're going to seize power by subversion, and then we're going to start killing people." Lots of them. Very Plutonian. So we have the emergence of modern communism in the wake of there. We have, we have modern art. Artists are going, oh, forget about all this, this stuff that like, that's like attractive and meaningful and communicates something to the, to the viewer. No, no, no. I'm going to have my dog barf on this canvas. And that's going to be very meaningful to me and nobody else will understand it. And that's what art is. Bizarre. But in the Plutonian period, that makes sense, that made sense to people. Yeah. I Is that a dog that. barking in the background? Mm, no. I thought I heard. They're, no, okay. I thought I heard a dog barking. I was thinking, oh, he wants to become an artist. My neighbor has the, uh, he's having a roof put on his house. And uh, I, 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 I tried to tell them. I said, look, you guys got to stop. I have John Michael Greer coming on my podcast. <laughs> and, and they, they just said, started Who? throwing nails at me. <laughs> Yeah. Now here I was thinking it was a dog saying, "Hey, I'll paint that ca that canvas." <laughs> but but yeah, so you have all these various cultural things we talk about in, in in the book that sort of come boiling up out of nowhere, and all focusing on this idea that um, beauty is bad and order is bad and. Um, Everything, you know, everything should be torn apart and everything should be ugly and everything should be devastated and everything should be, should be ripped in half. And, and because that's Pluto's energy. Pluto is the energy of opposition to unity and harmony and balance. Wow. So that kind of explains the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. Um, it explains more than one that, you know, there were a lot of mass killings. Yeah. 
during the 20, during the course of the 20th century. We had the the, the genocide against the Armenians um, right after the First World War. We had the Holocaust, of course. We had the incredible mass killings by communist regimes in, in Russia and China, and then Pol Pot's Cambodia, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was the it was the age of mass murder. Wow. So we only got like 15 more years of his influence if his shit's over. Yeah, it's 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 fading out right. Well, actually, yeah, um 20 since it was 2006 was when the was when the astronomers um decided to deal with reality and admit that it was it wasn't a planet. And so 2036 is would be the period when the 30-year lifetime will fade out. And after now, that doesn't mean that Pluto is going completely away. One of the things that um, astrologers have pointed out is that Ceres does have a significant influence. It's not on a planetary scale. It's not as powerful as a planet. But if Ceres is strongly placed in your natal chart, if she's like on one of the angles, you know, on the rising or setting or midheaven or the nadir or something, or conjunct an important planet or both, um, you're going to want to watch. Um, you don't want to pay attention to her influence because it actually does mean something. And in the same way, once Pluto finishes finishes his, his descent into dwarf planet status around 2036, he's going to be a minor factor, but he'll be a factor that may matter. You know, again, if you have Pluto rising in your natal chart or Pluto midheaven or something, you'll want to pay attention to him because those influences are still there. They're just not as pervasive, not as as society-wide, as worldwide, as they were between 1930 and 2006. So what does this mean um, from a worldview? Does this mean that um, we're going to leave this age of, of massacring each other and going to um, well, more peaceful? No. People now. People have been fighting wars since. Uh, well, since there have been people. Actually, beforehand, chimpanzees fight wars. Um, so there will still be war. Um, there will still be um, people behaving stupidly and killing each other. That's you know, we are not. You know, we we are very much in the process of our evolution, and <clears throat> we're not over that one yet. Not by a long shot. But organized mass murder may become less common. Um, but there's some other things that I expect to go away in a big in a big way. Um, we're seeing a kind of last hurrah of interest in in Marxism in, in sort of 20th century communism in some radical sects uh, on the left in the United States and a few other places right now. That's the last the last hurrah of that. Um, I expect nuclear power to be a thing of the past by 2036. Probably the last few uh, reactors will be mothballed around that time. Um, I expect nuclear weapons to become, um, if not a thing of a pa- the past, then at least a very minor thing. Mm-hmm. Um, China's already demonstrated you can be a very effective nuclear power with a few hundred bombs. You don't need you know, umpty 10,000 um, you know, nuclear warheads. All you have to do is be able to say, I can cost you more than you want to pay. And you're fine. So what I, I I think it's very possible that sometime by tw- by 2036 or maybe a little before, the various nuclear powers will do a a mutual um, arms reduction treaty where everyone will go down to like 200 warheads. Okay. And you know it'll be much cheaper for everyone. The U.S. and Russia both will save godzillions of dollars a year because those things are not cheap to maintain. And and everyone in the world will breathe much more easily where we don't have, you know, yes, there's still a risk of a minor limited nuclear war, but it's not the same thing. Um, 
I expect to see, I mean, modern art's already on its last legs. <clears throat> These, he, here in, here in, in Rhode Island, we have a, we have a big art museum in downtown Providence, um, run by the Rhode Island School of Design. And they literally have to, have had to design the place so that to get to the galleries that everyone wants to see, the galleries of, of, you know, traditional art and so on, you have to go through this gallery of modern art. There's no way around it. And they have to do that because otherwise nobody goes through the modern art gallery at all. Nobody wants to see that crap. So for a while bad they for, were for Andy Warhol. Yeah, yeah, Andy oh Andy Warhol. The thing is Andy Warhol Andy people think of Andy Warhol as an artist. Andy Warhol was a comedian. Andy Warhol was one of the great put on artists of the twentieth century. He was going the art community is so corrupt and so clueless that I can take a Campbell soup can. I can paint a Campbell soup can and Somebody will give me a million dollars for this object, and they'll treat it as serious art. I can, you know, trade. I can paint a box of uh, like a detergent box, and it'll be just <laughs> like the box out of the supermarket. And they'll treat it as serious art. What can't I do? John Cage was in the, did the same thing in music. You know, he did his famous composition that consists of nothing but rests. It's uh, four minutes, umpteen seconds of dead silence, mm -hmm. and people took him seriously. He was a comic genius. Those two, I mean, if they'd ever gotten together, you know, do, kind of do a Laurel and Hardy routine in the, or Abbott and Costello, that would be better. They're the Abbott and Costello of the 20th century creative world. Um, there was an enormous amount of that kind of put on. And I'm quite convinced that it was as fake as the day was long. They knew it. But there are a lot of other names, and they're names that nobody, I mean, can you how how many artists who are currently painting can you name right now? Zero. Exactly. A hundred years ago, everyone knew who the big artists were. They were major figures. Everyone was interested. Equally, um, composers of like serious music, cl classical style music. Not I'm not talking. You know, yes, we've got we've got rock, we've got pop, we've got jazz, we've got all these interesting stuff. But you know, the serious classical music. It used to be when like a new opera was premiered there was there were lines of the standing room only um the the metropolitan opera in new york city used to run opera six days a week around the calendar year round and they had people they never had um more than a few empty seats because it was it was good they were actually doing interesting interesting operas about interesting um, people with, with music that people could appreciate. And then it was, no, 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 we can't have that. We have to have music that is ugly, that's alienating, that communicates nothing to anyone. That's that's modern. And and as as a joke goes, um, symphonies that uh, symphonies now play modern um, stuff by modern composers when they don't want to have to put up with the inconvenience of having an audience. Hmm. <laughs> Those damn audiences. Yeah, exactly. It's so, so annoying. It's so annoying to have someone to have someone sitting out there. You know, let's just. But yeah, I mean, most most modern compositions are unlistenable. They're hideous, and they're supposed to be. Again, that's that Pluto energy. They they're the musical equivalent of Pluto of raw plutonium. And so everyone backs away and goes and listens to something more interesting. Um, you know, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star is more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, this is that's actually breaking down now. At this point, we've got um, 
we've got a, a new generation of, of uh, neoclassical composers who are making music that actually like sounds good. We have um, ateliers springing up all over the place where people doing old-fashioned classical art that looks good. You know, portraits that look like a human being and not like a collision in a, in a toilet paper factory. Um, <clears throat> and, and so on. And so the, so we can see that Pluton, the Plutonian emphasis trickling out of the arts. And, you know, sometime, probably around 2036, a lot of art museums are going to quietly bundle up their collections of modern art and stick them in warehouse somewhere, warehouses somewhere because, you know, somebody might want to research them someday. Uh, but nobody wants to look at so them. So goodbye to the Campbell Soup can. And goodbye the to the Campbell Soup Muse can. The Philadelphia Art exactly. Museum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Philadelphia Art Museum is going to have to get some art for a change. <laughs> because they actually do have some. But, again, you have to avoid the modern galleries because right. they stink on ice. So, did, yeah. They do have some Salvador Dali, though. Now Salvador Salvador Dali Salvador Dali is he is an interesting cat because he took the Plutonian energy and he got weird with it. I think he was much more of a Neptunian figure. Mm -hmm. Because that sort of dreamlike weirdness, the melting clocks and the, the all the other strange things happening that he loved to put into his art. Very Neptunian. So I think he managed to tune into a different planet. And and you know, everyone says, Oh yeah, he's a serious artist because he's weird enough, but uh, he does. He he was always kind of off doing his own thing, like the surrealists. You yeah. Know? So yeah, no, I'm I'm glad they I'm glad they have Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali is worth looking at. You know, Uranus and Neptune are both they're, they're planets for the long haul. Both of them had their own trends in literature. Um, Uranus is the planet of science fiction. Science fiction was invented um, by a young woman named Mary Shelley. Not long after after um, Uranus's orbit, Uranus was discovered. His orbit plotted. Um, she wrote this story called Frankenstein, yeah, which is generally considered the first work of science fiction. She took the latest scientific discoveries, spun them forward, and did this harrowing story. Much better than the movie, by the way. Read the book sometime. It's, it's yeah, a very different it. thing. It's awesome. Book. Yeah, you read it. Okay, good, good. Most people never have. Um, but yeah, so Frankenstein, and then. Neptune is the planet of fantasy fiction. It was after Neptune's discovery that you start getting people like William Morris and so on who invented the fantasy fiction that we all think about nowadays. And Tolkien was kind of a latecomer, although he really synthesized a lot of stuff. And so, you know, we have these, these new currents going on. And Plutonian, I mean, Pluto, Pluto had its own literature. If you read William Burroughs, if you read the Beatniks, if you read, um, well, a lot of very forgettable, ugly stuff. Um, that's 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 the Plutonian literary thing, but that's fading out now. Again, Would Jack Kerouac sort of fall into uh, Jack Jack, Jack Kerouac. Jack Kerouac, when at his best, he was much more interesting. The same is true of Ken Casey. Um, they could actually they could actually write a lot of the second rate beats. Uh, you know, okay, so Charles what? Bukowski. Um, okay, I'll pass. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely Plutonian. <laughs> it's very Plutonian. Oh come on, who's the guy? Um, oh, not remembering. There's. Um, you can actually see here. Here's a, here's another great example. We can look to look at the shift from the Neptune to the Pluto influence. H.P. Lovecraft, uh -huh. because Lovecraft starts out Neptunian. His early stuff is very fantasy. 
It's very dreamlike. In fact, you know, his his most famous early work was the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadaf. And then the further he goes, the more he gets into this weird horror, and the tentacles start slithering, and uh, you know, a great Kuru rises mm-hmm. battling from the sea, and you start getting this very Plutonian vibe. I think he's going to last. I hope so, because I am a Lovecraft fan. I'm a serious Ooh. Lovecraft fan. <laughs> <laughs> but I think people are going to see his work very differently once Pluto finishes fading out. I know... I mean, I read, I read him as a fantasy writer. I don't, I don't find... His monsters don't frighten me. Seriously, I mean, if Great Cthulhu rose from the ocean in front of me, I'd be going, cool. <laughs> hey, have you ever considered doing your um, like a commentary of your own version of the Necronomicon? <laughs> well, I'd have to, to, to begin with, I'd have to compete with um, uh, Peter Lavenda's, excuse me, Simon's Simon, version. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Simon, simple Simon, well, never mind. But, which... <clears throat> Now, if I, the the thing that would make that complex, I don't I don't know if I mentioned this in our previous things, but I've done a series of of kind of paralovecraftian novels, which I call my tentacle novels, mm-hmm. which are all written from the perspective of the other side. Um, their basic idea is that the great old ones, the tentacle gods, and so on, they're the good guys, mm-hmm. and the various believers, the the strange cults that worship here are the good guys. So, if I were to do a Necronomicon, it would have that very different vibe. It would be, you know, that's, these that's are the old cool. gods. These are the old gods of nature. Okay, they have tentacles. You know, they're weird. Um, you, you can risk mental un- unbalance by spending too much time around them, but that's just the risk you kind of run. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> nothing could make me unbalanced. Well, they, <laughs> <laughs> in my case, uh, well, do, do, there's this great moment in Young Frankenstein where Gene Wilder turns to Marty Feldman and goes, damn your eyes, and Feldman does the book, I think it's too late. <laughs> so that's the, where, where mental unbalance is concerned, that's what I say. <laughs> but, I don't know. I, the thing is, the, the funny thing here is that I'm considering doing uh, a project that I have in mind is doing something working with the symbolism of astrology as a resource for occultism and magic. And, you know, on the order of the, the way the Kabbalah has been worked into as a system uh-huh. for, for occultism and magic and doing astrology on the same basis. And, of course, if I'm going to do that, there's only one possible name for the book, The Starry Wisdom. Of course, if you know your Lovecraft, the Starry Wisdom Church yes. in Providence, Rhode Island, was where you know the um, the, the, the what was that? The Haunter of the Dark. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, I have Starry Wisdom Church congregations playing a role in my tentacle stories. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, what other things has Pluto influenced? Like, is Pluto responsible for like new kids on the block? <laughs> um. You'll have to um, forgive me. I, I'm not much into that, that style of music. Me so I, I honestly, I mean, don't, so I honestly it's, don't know. It's I, unforgivable. I, I, well, you know, I, I figure I am well on my way to geezerhood. <laughs> and so just as when I was a kid, I heard old guys say, those kids and their damn music. I now have the right to say, those kids and their damn music. <laughs> <laughs> So so we'll leave it at that. One thing, this is one of the ones that gets people's teeth on it. One of the things that is very Plutonian, and people are still very obsessive about it, 
is space travel. Um, if you go back before 1930 and look at science fiction, you're going to make a really uncomfortable discovery, which is that space travel was not that big a deal. Um, Jules Verne. Everyone's heard of Jules Verne. Everyone's mm -hmm. heard of science fiction novels. He wrote, I forget how many dozens of novels. Only two of them were about space travel. Right. Okay. H.G. Wells. We've all heard about H.G. Wells, another of the major pioneering um, works of science, uh, writers of science fiction. He wrote dozens of novels. Only two of those were about space travel. It wasn't that big a deal because most people looked at the situation. Okay, here's this inhabited planet, the inhabitable planet. Here we are on Earth, and what's out beyond the atmosphere? Well, vacuum mm -hmm. <laughs> and immense amounts of space, and then a bunch of other planets which have no air and no water and lots of other things wrong with them. But but after 1930, that didn't matter. After 1930, people got obsessive with this notion, we're going to the stars. And it was very Plutonian. If Pluto, if Pluto is about, uh, is, is, is opposed to life, if Pluto is opposed to, to existence, about tearing yourself away from things, so we have the, whether it's the Plutonium or the modern arch or any of these very anti-life kind of energies, space travel is the ultimate expression of that. We're not going to live in a living world, we're going to live in a mechanical, you know, uh, here am I floating in a tin can. You know, we're, in this, uh, you know, we're, we're going to move into these, these, over, these oversized tin cans in outer space in the middle of hard vacuum um, with no, you know, and, and that's going to be this wonderful new freeing thing. Except, of course, first of all, like almost everything in, Pluto, in the Pluto world, it didn't work very well. I mean, yeah, you can you can go to the moon, you can get to the moon, no question. We've done it. Um, I don't, the the people who insist we didn't go to the moon, the evidence simply doesn't support that. And so, you know, we you can get to the moon. It takes about three days. Um, it takes uh, what was it? We were spending about fifteen percent of the complete of the total federal budget of the United States went into the space program mm -hmm. during the Apollo years, and most of that went on the moon. It's, it's costly. You get to the moon, okay? You're on the moon. There are some rocks, yeah. <laughs> and, and so so on the one hand, it turned out not to be very profitable. On the other hand, um, once we started sending pro you know spaceships outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, you know the Earth has this magnetic field surrounding it, it has this protective magnetosphere that's held in place, that screens us from hard radiation. The sun is a gigantic unshielded fusion reactor. It's pumping out radiation at all times, in all directions, space is full of radiation. And that is why that and that is why the United States and the Soviet Union both scrapped their manned space programs in the mid in the early to mid nineteen seventies. They said, okay, from now on we're just going to stay down low, well underneath the magnetic field, so our astronauts don't get fried. Mm -hmm. Nobody talks about it because so, people are so obsessive about this dream of going to the stars. And yet that's what happened. Everyone just kind of said, uh, this is not going to work. And of course, then we started landing probes on Mars and turned out that Mars resembles nothing so much as a really boring corner of Nevada, except without air, water, or life. <coughs> and, um, and the rest of the solar system is even more un inhospitable to human beings. And it became very clear all by that time that, no, we're not going to the stars. We're not even going to other planets. 
except maybe to visit if we can get there and back without dying of radiation sickness. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole fantasy, the supreme fantasy of the Plutonian era, that's dying around us right now. I mean, the, the U.S. is still blustering about how it's going to go back to the moon someday. Have you noticed how much that sounds like, you know, some paunchy athlete, you know, former athlete, some guy who was a high school athlete, and now he's uh, 48 years old, and he's got a big beer belly, and says, yeah, I could get back out there on the uh, end of the field and, and, and show those young river snappers a thing or two. No, you can't, <laughs> Grandpa. No, no, have, have a beer. <laughs> Take it easy. Don't strain your heart. <clears throat> the United States is very much like that just now. And um, because it didn't work. If you read all this stuff from the um, from back in the in the 1960s and the early 1970s about our future in space, there are all of these claims about how this and this and this and this will make space space profitable. They were all tried; none of them worked. It's a gigantic white elephant that goes nowhere. So, we're going to have a very different future from the one that that the Plutonian era imagined for us. And I don't think most people have even begun to grapple with the idea that maybe. It's not that we're going to the stars. We're going to have um, a future here on Earth that's going to go all kinds of strange places we can't imagine yet. But it's not going to be the Star Trek future. Deal. Hmm. Like, what type of future do you vision? Well, one of the things that one of the things that tends, that tends to get lost in the Plutonian vision is the fact that history is about rise and fall. It's not about this constant upward march. Civilizations rise and then they fall, and then new ones rise and they fall again. So I want, imagine human beings living on this planet for another 10 million years or longer. I mean, human civilization as we've had it has only been around for about 5,000 years. So imagine, you know, hundreds of times that long. Um, human civilizations thriving, doing different things, coming up with their own technologies, their own cultures, their own art forms, doing all kinds of strange and interesting things out into the far future, doing things we can't even imagine today. And all the while, you know, the Earth going through its usual cycles, you know, we'll have it'll be it'll be warm for a while until we finish burning through those fossil fuels and then that runs out. And there will doubtless be an ice age sooner or later. And so, but just imagine changes, imagine new ways of doing things, new religions, new philosophies, new cultures, new art forms, all this kind of stuff. That's the kind of future that I imagine. Hmm. So you don't think that everything we could think of has already been done? <laughs> I don't think we've, I mean, 5,000 5, years, we've barely started. We, I mean, right now, our, te- our technology is, our technologies are clumsy. We burn fantastic amounts of of fossil fuels, you know, and the grand result of it is Big Mouth Billy Bass singing a song on your wall. I mean, come on. We can do better than that. <laughs> we can do more interesting things than that. <laughs> do you think that will, you know, like, like, do you think that will start exploring some of the thing, other things that you have written about, like the occult and... Some of our own um, powers that we have. I hope so. Because that, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the obvious thing to do. Okay, well, you know, I th- and I think it was appropriate. It was appropriate for our civilization to say, okay, wow, here's all this coal and oil and natural gas. I wonder what we can do with them. Okay, now we know. We've been there. We've done that. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And you know, here are these things with elect- we can do some fun things with electrons. Let's try this and this and this. Okay, we've done those. Great. Probably future civilizations, some of them at least, will 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 get our the remains of our system and go, Oh, that's interesting. The stuff they did well, pity there isn't any oil, coal, or natural gas left. But we can do this stuff with electrons. We can make some electronics. Um but yeah, the thing is to do things the the resources that we use least are the ones that are hardwired inside our own bodies and minds. And we know from watching some of the things that the practitioners of yoga can do, the practitioners of martial arts can do, and so on, that human beings are capable of fantastically more than um, they most people let themselves think about. Um, Frank Herbert's science, great science fiction novel, Dune, is a great example. He, mm-hmm. he imagines um, you know, the situation where there has been this, this galaxy-wide revolt against technology, the Butlerian Jihad. And so instead of building... Um, computers, we train people. We develop mentats, people who can think as fast as a computer. We develop the Bene Gesserit, who have all these strange powers and so on. And so I think really that is, that is certainly one of the ways forward for human beings in some of the civilizations. And, but, you know, there will be no one path. It's people trying out all kinds of different things. Do, do you think that... Um like rather than using like crafts for space travel and things like that, that we could possibly explore the universe in more of a way through consciousness. I don't know. It be it would certainly be worth trying. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you you gotta you, you gotta do that in the in the style of my misspent youth. Wow, man. <laughs> <laughs> Cosmic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting to think of like a world where people kind of go back and, and, and revisit, you know, some of the things that have been written thousands of, you know, well, not thousands of years ago, but hundreds of years okay. ago, you yeah. know. Well, like, or thousands of years ago. I mean, you can go you can go down to a good bookstore right now and pick up books that were written more than more than two thousand years ago. I mean, the Old Testament was written more than two thousand years ago. <laughs> the Vedas, so, stuff like that. If if you if you if you do a little looking, you can find the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I think is the oldest known work of literature. It's and it's it's a ripping read. Hmm. You know, it make it make good fantasy fiction nowadays. You, you know, Gilgamesh is a hero. He goes on this quest. He has these strange adventures. He comes home, uh, <laughs> and you know, very heavily changed by the experience. Um, you know, he fights monsters and all this kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a ripping good yarn. And this thing was written like 5,000 years ago. So, so there's a point to reading old stuff. And, there's, and, and we can imagine, you know, 100,000 years from now, vastly far into the future, far enough that um, there's this dim record in an old chronicle that there was once this country called the United States. But we don't know anything about it anymore because that was 100,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, and th- then comes the archaeological discovery of the millennium. They've discovered the ruins of Las Vegas in the Great Western Desert. <laughs> <laughs> what will they make of that? <laughs> I don't know what they'll make of it. <laughs> but yeah, you know, but se- seriously, this is the kind of, if, if, you, can, if you can imagine our civilization is something in the very, very distant past, so that people are looking back toward it from a distance of a millennia and going, wow, I wonder what those, those strange ancient people did. 
It's like like thinking like Gobekli Tepe was a place for strippers and gambling. If Las Vegas is what they have to go on, they say obviously they worshipped chance. They made offerings at these altars. And <laughs> I know, I know. This thing labeled casino. That must have been their word for temple. Now we have it. There, there is this hilarious book by David McCauley, an illustrated book called Motel of the Mysteries, where he imagines archaeologists finding an old motel um, in, you know, it's in an old American motel at some point, and they find this one complete room, and they treat it as though it's Tutankhamun's tomb. And they misunderstand everything. And I think that's probably what we can look forward to. <laughs> Man, like Stonehenge is like a really a card table. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the funny one of the funniest things I have ever read was um, a paper, a, a supposed paper from the Institute for Druidical Computing, which claims that Stonehenge was an ancient computer mainframe. And had all of this goofy material about how Stonehenge has a computer system, and clunkety clunkety clunk, <laughs> <laughs> running the, running the program, the software Runix. <laughs> <laughs> Runix. Runix. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> yeah, but you know, hey, we're, we we misunderstand our past; they'll misunderstand us in the future. But that's that's part of the fun. Interesting. Um, so. You mentioned earlier about like how when we were looking for Pluto and people are out there looking for this planet, Planet X. This is something that's still going on. You oh, know, yeah. like there's always this claim about this planet X called Nibiru. Oh, n- n- yes, the planet Nibiru. Uh, now, you, the, do you think that's the, out there? Do you think there is no. another planet X? Oh, the, well, first, okay. Now, here's two, there are two different questions here. Um, one of the are there other um, Planet, dwarf planets or planets out past Pluto, of course there are. They're finding more of those all the time. Um, they well, All the time. I mean, every few years they find another one. Because, again, even if you can have your computers look through a billion um, star pictures, there's a lot of star, a lot of space out there. Mm-hmm. And so um, they've, they've found a bunch of, a bunch of things. The, the, thing that, the thing that they're beginning to realize, and this has been, this has been theory for a while, but increasingly it's become, it's become a proven reality. You have this um, outside of the planets. Okay, here we have here we have the inner planets like Venus and Mars and Earth. Okay, and we have the big gas giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Kuiper Belt, and the Kuiper Belt is a belt of basically comets or the stuff that becomes comets when they drop into the inner solar system, lumps of ice, and some of them are little, and some of them are the size of Pluto. Some of them are probably much bigger. And then out beyond that is the Van Oort cloud. And the Van Oort cloud is a cloud of basically lumps of ice. And there are millions and millions of them. Some of them are probably bigger than planets. Right. And so, but we don't, you know, nobody knows a lot about them. They are a very, very long distance away. Um, they extend, they extend out, um, you know, a certain percentage of the a significant percentage of the distance to the nearest stars. So we are talking about a lot of space here. 
And so, and you know, with, with these lumps of ice scattered through it. So that's the Van Oort cloud. And are there planetary-sized bodies in it? Probably. Um, at that distance, you know, we probably will have to send space probes out looking for them if we can do so, because um, it's very, very hard to see. And of course, since they or since they're at that great distance, they orbit very slowly. We're talking the kind of thing that could take a hundred thousand years to circle the sun. And that's like another thing I was thinking is like, will astrology progress to a point where it starts? taking into account things outside of our solar system, like like other solar systems rotating mm-hmm. around the universe that are going at a much slower rate and start incorporating the effects mm-hmm. of those on us. Well that that's some of that has actually been some of that work has actually been done. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to ancient times you have people paying attention to the the bigger fixed stars they're not actually fixed of course they move very slowly but the the bigger stars the bigger the, some of them which are simply huge and some of which are quite close to us and they're tracking those and saying well you know when when mars comes into conjunction with antares we have this happening and when venus comes into conjunction with regulus we have that happening and so on so there started to be a little work in that direction well started to be meaning it's been going on for about 4000 years um, they're probably, you know, give us another hundred thousand years, we'll, uh-huh. you know, and, and check. I suspect quite a bit will be done with that. <laughs> and, you know, again, once we have a clear idea of what's out in the Kuiper Belt, what are the big bodies there, and what do they do? Obviously, Pluto is still having some effect. Astrologers right now are working on Eris, which is bigger. The one of the was one of the first ones found out beyond Pluto, and moves very slowly around the sun and. So it's going to take a while before we, we have figured out what she does, what her influence is. And then you have the ones like Sedna and Quaura and so on. Nobody knows yet. We're, that's that's still, it's still very early days, probably 20, 30 years before we have even the beginning of a clue. Um, but yeah, you know, 100,000 years from now, you go to your astrologer and say, okay, well, you know, here's the, here, here is the horror, here's the, you know, the position of the planets, and here's the position of the major Kuiper belt and, um, and Van Oort cloud objects, and here's where the, you know, the inner ring of, of stars near the sun were, lo- you know, within range were located at the time of your birth, and it's going to be a very complex thing. Wow. I wonder how how would they take into account the fact that the stars that we're observing, um, it takes so long for the light to reach here. We're looking at them. Mm-hmm. We're looking into like you know a couple hundred years into the past. How does that get yeah. calculated? In? Well, that's one of the things we have to find out is whether astrological influence moves at the speed of light. Because now, if Einstein is right, nothing in the universe can move faster than the speed of light. That was one of the basic rules of his theory. And so if he's right, then it doesn't matter the, the fact that, that, that Aldebaran, let's say, okay, is umpty hundred light years away and we're getting, we're getting his influences, you know, when, but that's when the influences are reaching us at the same time as the light. Mm-hmm. So the influences that left him, you know, a hundred years ago, they're hitting us right at the time of this chart. So that's what matters. Certainly, so far, nobody has found because I mean, you get that with some of the outer planets; they're some minutes away, um, yeah. in terms of in terms of light minutes, and yet they don't. Um, that doesn't seem to affect their, you know, where they appear to be is where they seem to act in terms of the the natal chart and so on. Hmm. 
So, so, so yeah. you, do you think that the speed of light is the fastest that these influences can travel, or do you think that it's there's very, I, possibly a speed of thought that was also shown in Einstein's theory of spooky distance, where the two atoms respond <laughs> instantaneously? That's that's a very good question. Um, I don't I don't know. I'm not I'm not a quantum physicist. Um, I don't even play one on TV, <laughs> and so. <laughs> And so, um, but certainly it looks as though astrological influences move at the speed of light. Are there things that can move faster than that? That's possible. Um, Einstein might not be, might not have been right about that. But so far, at least, his theories seem to work for astrology. And that's, you know, that's a, maybe, maybe that's as far as we'll get for another 2,000 years. Hmm. Interesting. So, right now, uh, I was mm -hmm. reading... Thing today about in April, there's going to be two full moons and some type mm -hmm. of eclipse. Mm -hmm. how, well, so what's April going to be like? Well, I, it, it partly depends on um, where you are, and it depends. Well, I guess on we're both in what, the same place, sort of. So. I guess say well, more or less, but it also depends on your natal chart for you yourself. You you're going to want to if you want to know what the, how the eclipse is going to affect you, you cast a chart for the moment of the eclipse. And then you compare that to your own natal chart, and you see is it an aspect to any part of your, um, any, any any of the planets or what have you in your chart. So if that eclipse is going to be affecting, you know, your your, it's let's say it's square your Jupiter, be really careful about money around that time, hmm. because ecl the eclipses are emblems of disruption. They are dis they are a very disruptive energy astrologically speaking. So if you know if, if um, if you know, um, let's say, or let's say that uh, the eclipse is is opposite your natal Mercury, whatever idea you you're going to probably have this marvelous bright idea, file it. It's not a good idea, even, no matter how good it looks. I don't know if I've ever had a good idea. <laughs> well, there we go. Maybe maybe you know, <laughs> maybe maybe the moon was eclipsed when you were born. Probably. <laughs> You know, actually, one of the things one of the things that I do um, is for my subscribers on Patreon and Subscribestar um, is I do reports on eclipses and also certain other kinds of mundane charts for the United States and Great Britain. I do them for the capital cities, doing what's called mundane astrology, the astrology of politics, and I do quarterly reports and also eclipse reports. I'll be I'll be gearing up to do uh, quite soon. In fact, I'll be gearing up to do the um, the the eclipse for April, and I've also just, um, let's see, Jupiter and and Neptune are going to be conjoined. They are conjunct in April, and when they are conjunct, in the past, Jupiter-Neptune conjunctions lead to stock market slumps and economic trouble. I mean, the last time it hit was 2009. Do you remember what the market was doing in 2009? Unfortunately, I do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, in 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 fact, in the paper that I that I posted a little while ago on that, I talk about you know what's happened to each of these conjunctions since 1950, and every single time there was an economic mess. We'll get over it. It's not a matter of oh my god, the stock market's going to collapse totally, blah blah blah. But it's not going to be a good time. Hmm. So I should stash some money. Uh, st stash some money and. You know, make sure that make sure your pantry is full. Of course, these days you have to do that anyway with the supply chain problems. Yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah. Is there any other astrological major astrological events coming up that I should know about? Um, this year just the usual. Um, it's gonna it's gonna be a bit of a wild time. I've been watching. Um, I, I cast a chart some well back when Joe Biden was inaugurated, because the the inauguration of a president is an important time astrologically. Mm-hmm. And um, he's not. I mean, as we've already seen, he's not having very good luck as president, and it's not going to get better. Right. <laughs> so, you know, too bad for Joe. Um, now, the funny thing didn't matter who was going to get inaugurated at that time. The Constitution says when the inauguration happens. So if Trump had gotten back in, he'd be getting clobbered right now. (laughs) So there you are. Um, (laughs) When we we get a new president, whether that happens in January of 2025 or whether Biden steps down or or dies in office and we get get Kamala Harris, I will cast another one and see what what we're facing that time. do you think we should change the inauguration date to match a good, more positive time well, in it's astrology? Hard. Like maybe back we in the day, it? well, ba- back in back in the Middle Ages, they actually, and England still does this. Okay, um, when when you put in the new head of state, for example, you know when 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 Queen Elizabeth finally finally um, passes away, and Charles becomes King Charles the Third of England. Um, he'll have you know he'll have his formal accession at X time, but then they have to schedule the coronation, mm-hmm. and that there's no fixed time for that. And back in the day, and for all I know, Charles has this in mind. Back in the day, you'd get a good astrologer to choose the date and time, and we we have some you know or, or not if you were clueless. But Queen Queen Elizabeth the First, we all remember Elizabeth First, who you know whose, whose sailors fought against the Armada and so on. The the who ruled over the first real golden age of British culture. Well, she knew a guy um, who named John Dee, who was an astrologer and I've an occultist. And you've heard of him, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, the first, you know, exactly. But uh, but one of the first things, first interactions they had, because she'd heard about this. This he was quite young then, and he'd heard about this this really smart young guy who was an astrologer, and she asked him to select the date for her coronation once she once her sister Mary Queen Mary died and she became queen and he did and she wanted a one that would be um, it wasn't she wasn't greatly concerned for herself she wanted the 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 um, the coronation to bring the best possible fortune for Britain and it did <laughs> John D clearly knew what he was doing yeah and then and then unfortunately um, her successor, James I, and his successor, Charles I, didn't do anything of the kind, and look what happened. Uh, so no, we get, should get be a good doing that. So, so yeah, the, the, the thing to do would be to have the president um, formally take over at, like, January 1st, but have him actually inaugurated some point in the month of January to be chosen by the new president. And then you have, you know, the president, the, the president-elect, um, one of his first jobs is to get on the phone with his favorite astrologer and said, okay, okay, Dr. D, I want the best date you can find this January. And, you know, the astrologer will calculate and say, okay, we're going to do it on the 16th at 5 p.m. And Washington, D.C., and, you know, here the sun is going to be doing this, and the moon is going to be doing this, and it's all in a good aspect of Jupiter, and the negative planets are all weak, and the positive planets are all good, and we'd probably end up having less trouble in here in the United States if we did that. 
I would pick a group of of astrologers to do that, and not let them talk to each other. <laughs> because and, because yeah. what if you picked the wrong astrologer, man? Oh well, yeah, you, the thing is that there is always there is always that risk. But the 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 goal here is again, like if you're like Queen Elizabeth the first, you're looking at you're looking at people's track record, and the one of the things that. This is rumored, it's, I, as far as I know. I don't think it has been proven, although uh, John Dee actually did a little time in prison because there were rumors spreading that he had cast a horoscope to calculate when Queen Mary was going to die. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows much about that, but my guess is that, Queen, that Princess Elizabeth, as she was then, knew perfectly well what the score was and saw the, you know, got a copy of John Dee's horoscope of, of her sister and went, oh, that's when. Okay, I'll get ready. And then she, you know, she kicked the bucket on schedule. Hmm. And away we go. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you, obviously you want someone with a good track record. <laughs> How's your track record? Um, so far, it's actually pretty good. Um, I don't know that I'd want to elect uh, the inauguration of a president yet. Um, I'm, I'm still learning. But... I have predicted economic downturns. I've predicted economic upturns. I've predicted um, national security crises and had them happen. Um, I did a chart for Australia once that said, oh boy, there's going to be some kind of big scandal involving a woman. Venus Mm -hmm. was in a bad position there. And guess what? There was a big scandal involving a woman. Um, And so, yeah, um, the thing is, astrology is useful. Astrology works. That's one of the scandalous things about it. And if you take the time to study the old books and not just do the sort of modern uh, personality-centered stuff, you can usually make fairly accurate predictions. Yeah. The one thing you have to do is get your ego, well, two things you have to do. You have to get your ego out of the way, and you have to get your preferences out of the way. Because a lot of people get into the astrology thing and say, ooh, I want you to show me that I'm going to get rich. You know, they're Saturn in the second house going, no, you're not. And they're going, no, no, I want, I, no, it's, it's, it's got to tell me that, that I want, to, you know, that I'm going to get rich because I want to get rich. And Saturn's just going, <laughs> like I care. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's actually a connection here in a certain sense to H.P. Lovecraft, who we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Because, um, one of the things, one of the things I really love about Lovecraft's cosmos is that the great old ones, the tentacled gods that rule the cosmos, they don't care. They really don't. They're not out to get us. They don't even notice that we exist. Yeah. When great Cthulhu rises from the sea, his major response is going to be, huh, what are those creatures? Eh, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> and that Lovecraft called that indifferentism. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the idea that the universe doesn't notice us, and if it did, it wouldn't care. Um, that's one of the things that astrology teaches, and it's something that a lot of people have a lot of trouble with. It's, you know, the, the spoiled two-year-old going, no, mommy, mommy, you know, make the world do what I want. It's not, you know, grow up. But people don't like to do that. No, no. Nancy Reagan used to have an astrologer, didn't she? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, she did. And, um, in fact, uh, Ronald Reagan's, not not his presidential inauguration, but his inauguration as governor of California was at this bizarre time. It was like late at night. And it was uh, uh, Quigley, I think, was the woman's name. And the astrologer, and yeah, um, it, she chose an exceedingly good election to get to you know lead to great political success, and we see what happened. It worked. 
it worked, you know. So if I run yeah, for even... so if I run for president, when would you be my astrologer? <laughs> if you run for if you decide to run for president, let me know and we'll see. We'll, we'll we'll put together some charts so we can. the The thing to do is to choose a good time for you to announce your campaign, because that's the birthday for your campaign. You see. So talk, then, last yeah. time I talked to you, I was talking about running for president, and yeah, the first exactly. thing I would do is like fire. Fire everybody, and then the next thing I'll do is fire myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's my plan. There there we go. But yeah, if you you just say if you said run, let me know. We'll choose a we'll we'll choose a suitable date for a um, for for you to announce your announce your run, and you know under the best possible planetary auspices. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if there's anything good in my plan. Sure. No, you know, no. The thing is, it does. That's why we choose the date. You didn't choose the date you were born, okay? You know that happened when it happened, and but you weren't like sitting in there going, okay, looking at the watch, going three, two, one, birth time. <clears throat> no. <laughs> well, I don't know. You might have tried it, but <laughs> the rest of us normally don't do that. But but in the case of something where you can actually choose the time, yeah, you can do that. I, I do this. Uh, I do this sort of thing all the time. When I'm doing, uh, when I'm going to submit a manuscript for a book to a to a new publisher, for example, I choose a time when when there's a, when there are good aspects to my natal chart, hmm. when the planets are in in favorable aspects for that kind of thing, good Mercury aspect or something, and it it really does seem to help. Wow, I have to start paying more attention. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, it'll be a couple of years yet because the book's not finished and then it has to go through the usual process. But I'm actually working on a book that will teach people how to do that specific kind of thing, how to watch transits across their natal chart and, um, and use that um, for, for, you know, good timing. So, you know, give it a couple of years and you can, you can buy a copy or actually, you know, have the, have the publisher send you one. We can talk about it um, on the air and you can then use perfect timing. Interesting. One more question: Is there such a thing as being born under a bad sign? Um, there are no signs are bad. Some of them can be a little more difficult than others, but if you you can certainly be born with a difficult natal chart. You can be born with um, you know with the the planet that rules your chart. Um, in bad condition, you could be born with your the sun, your placement to your sun, in a place where the sun does not work well, or in bad aspect to a malefic planet or something like that. You can be, you can, you can end up having a, a very difficult chart. Now, the traditional lore is that this is this is how you see what your karma is. So, if you have a bad chart, you earned it. If you have a good chart, you earned it. If, like most of us, you have a mediocre chart with some good things and some bad things, well, you're in that too. So, you know, you're, if you want a better chart the next for your next incarnation, <clears throat> get cracking and you know, live a better life. So you're telling you're telling me we get what we deserve. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know the the universe the, the you know the the universe is the universe does not care. It hands out exactly what you know what we what we what we deserve. And if we want to whine about it, that's fine, but it's not as though the stars have any reason to care. <laughs> you know, there's Saturn out there going, hmm, big deal. Yeah, it's going to keep <laughs> Yeah, I know, you're going to be poor for the rest of your what? life, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, you know, that's, somebody has to do it. 
awesome. So um, it was a pleasure talking with you again. As always, we, we, have great, we have great conversations. Yes, we do. And um, before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you? And when is the book coming out? Oh, it's, it's actually just out. It's, yeah. it, is, it is now. Um, it depends on the venue. There are some places that have it. There are some places that are just getting it. Um, one distributor will have it like April 2nd. One distributor has it already. Some people who've ordered it from directly from the publisher already have their copies. Some are still waiting for it. It's right in the middle of the process. Awesome. In terms of where to find me, um, you want to go to um, www.ecosophia.net, E-C-O-S-O-P-H-I-A.net, or to ecosophia at uh, .dreamwith.org, which is my Dreamwith journal. Um, also, if you go to Bookshop, if you want to uh, to um, find a convenient source for my books, bookshop.org, and just do a search for John Michael Greer, you will find me. All right. I'll put the links to those in the notes of this mm-hmm. episode so my listeners can find you and get your books. Excellent. Thank uh, you. Oh, it was a pleasure talking with you again. And just hang Absolutely. on for one moment. I'm just going to play the outro. Mm-hmm.